This week, Space Rogue is with us to discuss his book, How Hackers Known as Loft Changed the World, which comes out today. Then Pablo Zuro is with us from Forda's Core Security to talk about pen testing and red teaming. Finally, Dr. Inka Karpinen from CybeSafe joins us to talk BS, behavioral science, that is. That's right, three interviews today on this episode of Enterprise Security Weekly. This is a Security Weekly production for security professionals by security professionals. Please visit securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe to subscribe to all the shows on our network. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where we talk security vendors and aren't afraid to name names. It's Enterprise Security Weekly. Welcome to Enterprise Security Weekly and happy Do a Grouch a Favor Day. This is episode 306, recorded on Thursday, February 16th, 2023. I'm your host, Adrian Sanabria, and joining me is the Master of Marketing, the Mayor of Mayhem, the Professor of Purdue Models, Tyler Shields. How are you, Tyler? On mute, it seems. <laughs> well, great. I laughed and, and said I hadn't heard that last one. The professor of whatever the hell you said. Purdue models. Purdue models. Oh, my goodness. There, There's some real, uh, real insanity. You're going deep in the well on that one. Hey, we're about to talk about the 90s, so I figured, you know, might as well start here with the intros. Uh, I, I do think we will eventually hit a lot of flashback style stuff in this stuff uh, in this particular interview. And I'm so excited for this interview. You have no idea. <laughs> me too. Me too. Also joining us is the czar of zero trust, the captain of content, Katie Tytler. How are you, Katie? I'm well, happy Thursday. Happy Thursday to you. And uh, you do a grouch a favor every day. You own a cat. I do. He's taking a bath right now. My dog's snoring in the corner. It's just a veritable zoo over here. Also joining us is the Baron of Bloodhound, the Pirate King of PowerShell, Sean Metcalf. How are you, Sean? Doing good, Adrian. Um, looking forward to getting into spring so that we can get away from this winter thing that apparently the uh, the rodent up north in Pennsylvania decided that was going to continue for several more weeks. Uh, yeah, everybody's getting different stuff. We've got spring... I uh, I took some Dayquil today, so I wouldn't be all stuffy for the podcast. But uh, we're we're in full high wind tree pollen season right now. We're in our first spring. Yeah, that's not enjoyable at all. It is not. All right, few announcements here. Uh, do you have a specific guest or topic that you want us to cover in one of the shows? Submit your suggestions for guests by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash guests and completing the form. We review suggestions monthly and we'll reach out to you once reviewed. I am a little behind on my reviews for once. Uh, I promise I will get to those. Uh, I've actually already promised I'd get to them later today to Renee. So I'll, I'll get there, Renee. Also, while we don't have a new segment today, I wanted to take a moment to tell you about the security funded newsletter. In the past, when putting together the new segment, I'd set aside three or four hours to gather interesting stories, funding events, and acquisitions for us to discuss from newsletters, uh, custom Google searches I had, all, all these different things. And then I discovered Mike Prevett's security-funded newsletter and has cut my prep time down to less than an hour. So I felt kind of obligated to give him a, a, a little ad here because he saved me so much time every week. Uh, security Funded breaks down cybersecurity funding news by product category from a CISO's point of view. 
If you have any interest in security startups or emerging trends in the security market, you should sign up for the security-funded newsletter at returnonsecurity.com. All right, with that, we're talking to Space Rogue today about his memoirs, How the Hackers Known as Loft Changed the World, which is available right now. Uh, you can go to securityweekly.com forward slash space rogue uh, to get some links to where you can buy both the digital and the physical version of that book. And Space is probably best known as a member of Loft Heavy Industries, but he also created the popular websites Whacked Mark Mac Archives and Cyber Squirrel One. He also produced the weekly Spider Labs radio podcast, which I, I used to listen to every episode of, and the weekly news video program, The Hacker News Network, which uh, was a little early for me. I guess I, I, I think I missed the original version of those, and they came back, and I watched some of those. Um, but he currently works as the Global Policy and Special Initiatives Lead for IBM's X-Force. Welcome, Space. Welcome. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Yeah, so, you know, I guess the natural first question is, uh, who and what drove you to write this book? Who was, <laughs> it was, was there anybody cracking the whip behind you here, or, or was this something that you'd been attempting over the years and just uh, pushing yourself to eventually do? How did this come about? Uh, the book, I mean, there's been attempts to write the book. Several people have tried to write the loft story, as it were, uh, for a long time. And we've had some some well-named authors come to us and say, hey, I want to write the loft book. Well, like, okay. Uh, and they start doing the interviews and trying to do the research and realize that it's a huge, huge story and it's a big undertaking. Um, and so those, those efforts never really panned out. And a few, well, I guess maybe five years ago, I was like, you know, what? I'm going to do it. I'm just going to write what I know and what I remember and try to put that down. And uh, yeah, I realized that's a huge, huge undertaking. Uh, and but somehow at some point, uh, August or so of, of 2019, uh, I realized, you know, what? I'm just going to start writing. And uh, I did. And I started I made an outline. I filled in the outline. And before I know it, you know, I had 70, 80,000 words and then I polished it up a little bit. And uh, I had a book and kind of how it happened. And then it, that was it. You were done. It was published, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, the publishing uh, story is a whole nother mess. Um, you know, at first I tried to, to get an actual, go through the traditional route and get a, an agent, uh, which means you send out query letters and they read your letter. And if they like your book or your idea, they say, hey, I'll represent you. And, and then they try to sell you to a publisher. And I had three or four agents come to me and say, hey, this is a great story. I really like it. Um, I really want to get behind this project. But I don't think it works as a memoir. In fact, I think it would be better if we rewrote it and did the full nonfiction treatment and got some interviews done and did the footnotes and all that other stuff. And I'm like, you know, I just, I've written this as a memoir. It's kind of my story. Uh, if we try to change it, I don't really have the time and bandwidth to do all that. So after three or four uh, episodes like that, I was like, you know what, I'm just gonna, gonna do it myself. And so uh, I hired a, hired a developmental editor, hired a copy editor, um, got some some beta readers, uh, got somebody to design the book, uh, put this all together and and published it. And so now it's available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and Apple Books and uh, anywhere else that your local corner bookstore will have be able to order as well. So. Awesome. And, you know, I guess my next next question is, is just kind of the size and the shape uh, of the book and the story. What what made it into the book? You know, what's the general um um, like, where does it begin? Where does it end? You know, and, and what uh, I imagine when putting something like this together, 
you know, even with the size of a book, you still have to make some choices as to what to include and what not to uh, include in the book. So, so what what made it in? What didn't make it in? And and well, you know, what's what's the, the as for the size? It's about six inches by nine inches. Uh, standard. It's a rectangle. It's a rectangle shape. It's a rectangle. It's 361 pages, I think. Uh, 349 in the hardcover version. Um, as for what's in the book, uh, you know, it is a memoir. So it starts out at the beginning uh, where I grew up in Maine and uh, what technology I had available to me and how I sort of made the journey from rural backwoods dirt farming Maine to, uh, you know, cybersecurity and, and how that evolved and, and the path that I took to get there. Uh, detoured in the U.S. Army, uh, went to Boston University for school, had to leave BU because I ran out of money really quick because it's an expensive school. Uh, but because of that, I was able to fall in with a bunch of folks <clears throat> who were calling bulletin board systems at the time, the old BBSs on dial-up phone networks. Uh, and we created uh, the loft where I was asked to join the loft. And the loft uh, ended up, started looking at security vulnerabilities uh, and posting those things on our website. And one of the probably the very first organizations to publicly release uh, information like that and sort of started the whole vulnerability disclosure debate and how we do that and what we're going to call it and how much notice do we give companies and the things that we still debate today. From there, Loft went on to, uh, for those that don't know the story, went on to testify in the U.S. Congress in 1998. Um, I created the Hacker News Network. Uh, we got some uh, venture capital from uh, and formed the company or got bought by a company called At Stake. Uh, and so all of those things are, are in the book and are detailed to the best of my recollection as to what happened and how they impacted and what was impacted. Now, things I left out of the book, I mean, like it's 348 pages. And I couldn't put everything in there. So there are some stories that, that got left out. And um, like I said, I, when I was writing the book. I had an outline. And I just kind of went through and filled out the outline. And uh, so I cut some things that I didn't think were relevant. And I, I thought up more things that I that I remembered. And I was like, oh, I got to put this in there. So it was just kind of a process that I went through uh, as I was writing to decide uh, what was important and what was relevant to the story and what wasn't. One last question before I let everybody kind of I, I, I know there's lots of pressing questions from everybody here that read the book. Um, but, uh, do, do you anticipate any, um, <laughs> I don't want to say drama and blowback, but, uh, you know, I'm sure when you point out, you, you say, I hope other people also write up their recollection, re recollections. Uh, I don't know if I'm reading into that too much when I think people, people might disagree with your version of how things happen. Um, I have had one comment so far from one of the early readers um, that they didn't like the book too much, uh, or at least one section of it. Uh, but for the most part, the, the feedback has been been fairly positive. Uh, as far as my uh, point in the epilogue of the book that I hope that others also write their story uh, of the loft, uh, is because it, I think it was a very impactful organization one way or the other. One mm -hmm. of the very first websites on the internet, one of the first 10,000 websites, um, there were a lot of people that that not only looked and, and interacted with our website, but also uh, interacted with at stake or read our advisories or worked at at stake and have gone on. Uh, and I think there's a paragraph at the end where I list a bunch of very well-known people uh, who were heavily influenced by law. So uh, I think that uh, I only have one viewpoint and, and what I saw and what I remember uh, from those events. And I would hopefully hope that other people would also write their viewpoints and what they remember uh, about the loft 
uh, and their interaction with it so that maybe together we can try to put together uh, an, an actual truth of what the loft was and what it meant to uh, the industry and the industry and the internet as a whole. Uh, because at this point, I think before I, we're starting, I started to see, and one of the reasons I put the book together was that it was some mythology starting to starting to be created around the loft and stories that were getting longer and more grandiose with the retelling. And, you know, that's great and that's fun, but it's not really accurate and historical and, and how I remembered things. And so I wanted to get those memories down uh, on record uh, so that I could refer to them and other people could refer to them as well uh, and, and look and say, well, Space Rogue said it happened this way. And then hopefully somebody else will write theirs down and say, well, somebody else says it happened this way. And then maybe between the different versions, we can figure out uh, what exactly really happened. So, so space. I have a, a, a history alongside you. I certainly don't claim to be anywhere near part of the loft. I was a 2001 addition to the at stake team, and uh, had had the opportunity to meet you a few times. But, you know, thinking back, you know, I read, I read it, I read the book. I have like 20 pages left to go, so I'm pretty much cover to cover at this point. And your experiences mirror mine, and probably mirror a large number of people our age, right? Uh, experience wise, like coming up through the BBS scene, moving into um, you know, uh, hardware scavenging, trying to pull things together. I had racks in my in my apartment, racks of old hardware in my apartment in Silicon Valley. Um, you know, it's it's very much a story of kind of building it from zero and building the cybersecurity uh, community and universe really from zero, from a non-existent state. What I've always wondered, because I don't I don't know how many folks really know this, but the loft was a massive influence on me personally, a massive influence. Because I remember from when I moved out Silicon Valley in 22, at 22 years old, seeing the stuff that the loft was putting out, having heard of them for a handful of years before I, I moved out there at 22 years old, and then being there, you know, when uh, BO2K was launched, being at um, DEF CON 6 and seeing some of the speakers and getting to meet some of the folks, um, massive impact on me. But what I've always wondered about the history, and was, when I was reading the book, one of the things I wondered, at what point did the loft become, let's call it sentient on its impact on the world? And so, you know, in 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 the steps of the book, right, you, you kind of go through your experience, how you grew, how you joined the loft, how it grew, how it testified in front of um, uh, the Senate, how it, you know, turned into a, a private company and, and et cetera, et cetera. At what point were you able to to sit with the team at the loft and go, hey, Weld, hey, hey, folks on the team, this is important. Like, at what point did that become a reality for you? Uh, I don't know if I could say when the group realized that. I mean, for me, there's two or three uh, poignant moments, one of which I describe in the book was uh, when I'm on stage at uh, uh, Beyond Hope, I think it was, which is the second hope. Um, mm -hmm. And I realized that, like, people already knew me in the crowd, like, and would come up and say hi. And I'm like, I don't know who you are. And you're saying hello to me. And like, how does that happen? Like, that's kind of mind boggling. Uh, and then we're on stage and we're being streamed live to, to Europe over an ISDN line. And, you know, and this is in 1996 or 1997. And it's like, it was just, that was a big moment for me. Like, okay, Loft is kind of a little bit more than what I thought it was. Um, you know, and then there was the, the Senate testimony, which of course was pretty big. And you get mentioned on Conan O'Brien, uh, as a as a punch as a punchline, um, so and those were. But I don't know if 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 we all sat down as a group and said, okay, 
this loft thing is kind of bigger than we thought it was or, or is becoming more impactful than we thought it was or uh, is, is really making a huge difference. Uh, it was kind of because it was a slow evolution over seven, eight, nine years. Uh, and it just sort of kind of grew on itself and started to snowball and, and move along. And we just kind of moved along with it. Uh, and so I don't know if there was one any light bulb moment for the group. Uh, I had a couple of small ones individually, but, I don't, but as the group, I don't know. Uh, we'd have to get everybody yeah. together in a room and decide that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as a, as a consciousness, it's kind of tough to know, right? And you, you kind of can't know in the moment, right? And in some ways, people would ask me the same thing, like, oh, you're part of that stake. Like, that was a thing, right? That does have its own gravitas. Certainly not as much, I don't think, as the loft, uh, as far as a broader impact. But it still held gravitas for a while. Sadly, you know, as we get older, those things those things tend to fade away. But you never know it in the moment. It's very hard to kind of recognize that this is having a massive impact. Because I think if we could notice it, we may not make the same risky decisions, right? Um, and looking back at some of the decisions you guys made as a as a group, as a team, you made plenty of risky decisions along the along the era of building the loft and transforming it into at stake and eventually uh, moving on from it. What would you say the biggest moments of of fear, of doubt, of hey, is this a smart thing for us to be doing? What were the like one or two biggest moments of fear you had, either as an individual or as a team uh, collectively, as you can remember? So I, I talk about uh, well, there's one event that I, I know that was that was controversial. A couple events that we we did have some legal trouble, um, which I briefly cover in the book. There wasn't anything major um, when you look back on it and see, oh, well, so and so is trying to sue us. Like, yeah, whatever. Uh, at the time, it was huge, like because yeah. we couldn't afford lawyers. We didn't want to go to court. We didn't know what was going on. We're like, we'll just get rid of this, right? So those were a couple of moments where we're like, uh, yeah, this is this is a big issue. Um, there was another issue I talk about during my Hacker News Network uh, when it was a website before it was video. Uh, and there was the uh, Legion of Underground, for those who remember their story back in 1999, who ended up de declaring cyber war on Iran. And... Uh, I think it came out of chaos, uh, the chaos computer group in uh, computer club in Europe. Uh, they're like, well, this is not good. We can't have groups going around declaring cyber war because that's just bad. So we're going to come out and say that we're against this. And they basically created a coalition of hacker groups around the world to join them uh, and signing on to this this document saying that this is bad. <clears throat> and Loft really hadn't gotten into a lot of policy stuff like that and hadn't really put ourselves out there at that point. And it was kind of a, a big discussion inside the loft as to whether or not we were going to sign our name to this document. And I thought it was like a done deal. Like, of course, we're going to sign our name to this. This is absolutely right up our alley. We're really going to do this. Uh, but when I put this to everybody else in the group, uh, there was a lot of hesitation about getting involved in that sort of thing. And so thankfully, eventually, we were able to uh, come to an agreement to add our name to it, because I thought that if we didn't add our name to it, uh, that it would look really bad for us not to be a part of it. Uh, and I still think that. So I'm very glad that we ended up signing that document um, and denouncing uh, the cyber war of 1999 of uh, Legion of Underground against uh, uh, Iran and Iraq. Uh, but, you know, if you look at that now, it seems very naive to think that that had any impact or difference at all when you have major nations launching cyber wars against each other, uh, known and unknown, right? The recent revelations coming out of Israel today. Um, so, uh, yeah, but that was a, a big influence, I think, or a big impact that, uh, that we had at the loft where I was like, you know, this is a make or break deal. This is a, a, a risk that we're taking, um, but this is, I think, something that we have to do. So, um, yeah.
Hey, Space. Uh, thanks so much for being on here. I really appreciate uh, getting the opportunity to talk to you and certainly hearing the history from someone who was there. Uh, had some fun conversations at uh, around Black Hat and DEF CON this past summer, and Dildog was there and had some good chat with him and have, have kind of bounced around the, the, the community and, and been around and peripheral with, with folks from Loft over the years. But I remember using Loftcrack back in the day and, and working with Windows NT in order to use it to identify weak passwords. Um, there have been many who have identified issues with Microsoft security and attempted to push to make things better. And certainly, uh, you wrote in the book, which I, I read and enjoyed immensely, uh, about how Loftcrack was really meant to add to the voices of saying to Microsoft, hey, this is a problem that needs to be fixed. Um, my, I've focused my career on the Microsoft side of things, and certainly security has been not great in that area and, and, and the defaults. Um, you mentioned uh, Windows Snyder and Katie Masuris in your book, and, and they've done a lot to help improve community involvement around uh, security researchers and how companies interact with them. How do you feel that companies are doing with that interaction with security researchers today? Has it gotten better or good enough? What are some areas that still uh, need some improvement? You know, it's, it's interesting because yeah, I forget who it was that said it, but, you know, the future is here, but it's not evenly distributed. Um, and it, <laughs> we still see that with, with security reactions from companies, large companies, uh, as to whether or not they're uh, helping or hindering security practices. And uh, I think for the most part, of course, if you look at Microsoft today versus it was 1999 uh, or 98, it's totally different company, right? And most companies are different, but there's still a lot of companies that look at security as a Im impediment to business uh, and don't want to know about their vulnerabilities and don't want you to tell them about their vulnerabilities. Uh, and on the other side of the spectrum, we have companies who are doing bug bounties and uh, rewarding researchers for finding issues. Uh, so uh, on the one hand, we've come a long way, like bug bounties were never a thing back in, in the 90s. Uh, uh, but at the same time, we still have a large number of companies who aren't responding uh, in that way and are not offering that opportunity to folks. Absolutely. And and thank you for that. Related to that, um, one of the things that I really enjoyed in the book is, is the definition of a hacker. So for me, hackers have always been curious, interested in how things work, want to really understand the system from kind of the inside out. Um, a key point that I read in the book was it was effectively do no harm. Like, go ahead and look at things, be curious, but really don't cause any damage. Uh, and there's been a variety of approaches to what hackers are over time. Certainly a whole movie about it where apparently hackers skate around and, and spray paint their keyboards. Uh, but how do you see the evolution of both the term and the hacker community itself today versus how it was you coming up certainly with hacker spaces like Loft? I mean, yeah, I mean, that's a good point. The, uh, the, the do no harm, uh, you know, look around, but don't cause any damage. That uh, was kind of a, an ethos that was there for me anyway, at the point when I was, was, was looking around in systems. Was, uh, and I think in some cases that, that ethos has sort of uh, disappeared, partly because technologically we don't need to do that anymore. Uh, if you wanted to learn various operating systems or, or large systems, multi-user systems, you kind of had to do that out of necessity. Like there was no other option. Uh, today, you can run, you know, through emulation or, or virtualization or whatever. Uh, you can run those large operating systems on a small desktop machine, a Raspberry Pi, for example, or something. Uh, so that the opportunities are much greater today to gain that knowledge by yourself, uh, whereas... Uh, in, the, in, in the early days when I was coming up, that, that opportunity didn't exist. 
so you sort of had to make your own opportunities, as it were. Um, but the, the technology sort of has hopefully caught up and, and enabled people to sort of learn a lot more on their own uh, without having to uh, violate other systems uh, or, or compromise them in any way. So uh, it sort of makes it easier for people who are tinkering and trying to learn. Um, and at least it, it definitely makes it safer. Uh, keep yourself out of jail, as it were. So, um, you know, time, time marches forward and, and we keep going forward and hopefully things will get even better. Absolutely. And and from my perspective, I mean, things were a lot more amorphous back there. It wasn't as clear as what system you were on and who uh, or where you were interacting, who you might be interacting with. I remember uh, when I got my first modem in the 90s, uh, connecting into a system, dialing in, and then going from there and telnetting into another system where I could create an account for myself on the system and then just kind of poke around and then connect to another system and look somewhere else. So all, all this kind of thought of Looking at things to see what's there, I think, uh, kind of, there's this pivot into the cloud. We're, I feel like we're kind of in a, a similar type situation there, uh, which is a, another question I have for, for, for in a few minutes. But one of the themes uh, in the book that was clear to me while reading it was your interest in level of tinkering, uh, from making a flashlight, uh, you know, in, in your youth, to figuring out how to repair Macs at CompUSA, to building and rebuilding several computer types, including Macs. Uh, and to me, that's kind of the essence of hacking. Uh, what other personality traits or interests do you think are important for people who are working to help improve computer security or even getting into the field? Uh, I mean, you mentioned two of the biggest ones, I guess, tinkering and curiosity. Uh, like, you know, what does this do? Oh, let me push the button and find out. Uh, what happens if I type this command? What happens if I do that? Like, oh, let's just check it and see. Uh, and, uh, you know, that kind of goes along with having your own systems to, to do these sorts of things on. Uh, so that if you cause damage or something crashes or or there's a you know some service is, is borked or whatever you, you can just turn it turn it off turn it back on again um, and so we can do that today it was difficult to do that before uh, I mean you mentioned the tinkering I don't know if you can see behind me I have my workbench right back here with my solder and iron and my my little tinkering projects that I'm tinkering on which these days mostly involves repairing my kids toys uh, but still. Uh, it's it's fun. I break out the the old soldering iron and, and trying to or or redo some firmware or something. Uh, and so I still keep my my hands in stuff now and and still try to tinker and keep that curiosity edge sharp. Um, uh, but the, the, those are some of the key traits I think that are needed. And so I like I deal with uh, our interns at IBM a lot, and uh, they're most of them are are still in college and they're taking standard security classes. Uh, and some of them come in with a very strong uh, curiosity, desire to, to tinker with stuff. And some of them don't, but they're very good at the classes that they have. And so part of the thing that we try to do during our internship is, is sort of teach them how to be curious and realize and let them know that, you know, okay, if you just try something and it breaks, it's not a big deal. Like, that's how you're going to learn. Uh, so please try to break this. Uh, and so it's very interesting to see them uh, progress through the summer, through the internship, and uh, watch them become curiouser and curiouser over the summer until, uh, you know, we basically graduate them at the end of the year and send them back to school. So hopefully to be better security professionals than when they arrived with us. Yeah. And, and so I mentioned the cloud a little while ago and how, you know, 
looking at the cloud today, kind of comparing it to the early days of the internet where you would modem into something, then you would uh, then telnet somewhere else. And whereas before we were using telnet apps, now we're using a web browser, and pretty much everything is done from the web browser. So I kind of see the evolution of computers and computing as, as effectively waves from mainframes to modems and BBSs, and then we get the internet with the web layered on top of that. And the next wave that we see after that, or as I see it, are companies connecting to the internet and the challenges with that. So now we've invited attackers effectively into our environment because firewalls aren't doing it, <laughs> uh, controlling that. And then leveraging the internet as part of the business and incorporating that. Uh, we're likely in the cloud wave now, uh, with the next one very possibly, probably being AI. Uh, how do you see this evolution? Where do you see things going? Uh, I kind of looked at the evolution to cloud as return to, to client server, right? Client return to the mainframe, uh, where you have multiple users using you know, the same resources. Uh, is one way to look at it. I don't know if the next wave is AI or not. I haven't really seen anything yet that I would call intelligent, artificial or otherwise in that area. Um, uh, you know, there's, there's a couple of years ago, everybody thought the next wave was going to be blockchain. Well, that kind of imploded. Um, I, I don't know if, if uh, machine learning, which is probably a better accurate description of what we're, we're seeing today than, than artificial intelligence. Uh, I don't know if that's the next wave or not, but it's definitely an exciting wave. Uh, definitely some stuff that, that's good to tinker with. We see a lot of people tinkering with the, the, the current clients that are available publicly at the moment. Uh, and I have to wonder when I see the output of some of these clients, I'm like, well, if that's what they're making public, what do they have behind the curtain that's, that's not public? Like how much more advanced are they? Um, and that's something that, that I always think about like, well, okay, this is what's out today that I can access. Uh, what kind of stuff is out there that they're, they're accessing uh, on the workbench? Uh, and what are they thinking about for the, for the next thing? Um, and so, you know, technology marches forward. It's very exciting. Uh, and, and, you know, I don't know what the next wave is going to be. And maybe it is going to be whatever this AI thing is that they're calling AI. Uh, maybe it'll be something else, uh, you know, the uh, quantum computing and, and whatnot. Uh, it's, hard to, it's hard to know, but it's uh, looking forward to it. So I'm, I'm glad that you talked a little bit about your background and it set the stage. And as Sean alluded to, you mentioned in the very beginning of the book that tinkering and curiosity are huge parts of becoming a hacker. Um, but you also alluded to this hierarchy or this almost class system that existed back then. And, and I think there's still a little bit of that. Uh, personally, I'm not very technical. And I still get that sense in certain groups, certainly not all of them. There are amazing people in security as well, but there are certain people in security who have this idea of an elite group. Um, but when we're talking about cybersecurity now versus 20, 30 years ago, the industry is completely different. So you said, you know, hey, I'm sorry for all I did back then, but what is your opinion now of how things work? How should things work? What kinds of people should be getting into security? How can we encourage this as a growing field? Because it is, it's very, very different and very, very in demand now. Uh, yeah, so I think, you know, back in the day, as it were, there was a lot of gatekeeping uh, and a lot of uh, people trying to keep other people out uh, and, and not, sharing uh, as widely as they could have, uh, to put it lightly. Uh, and today, you know, you say things have changed a lot in the 20, 30 years, and they have changed, uh, but we're also, we have the same people in the industry that we had then. 
Uh, and some of those, those issues are still there. Some of that gatekeeping is still there. So how do we change that? How do we move forward and make things uh, uh, more accessible to everyone? Uh, and I think by looking for uh, uh, underrepresented groups and, and actively attempting to encourage them to get involved, uh, we will widen, widen our pool of talent and, and knowledge that we have available to us. And that can only help everybody, right? Uh, so, you know, we, I, at IBM, we take active steps to recruit widely and, and not be that gatekeeper and give uh, other folks a chance that may not otherwise have a chance. Uh, and that's something that I think everyone sort of needs to actively uh, be involved in and realizing that uh, just because uh, you know, that's how it was always done does not mean that's the way it always has to be. Uh, and that we can make steps to uh, get more broader experiences, more broader voices, uh, get those types of people involved and encourage them to continue on and overcome the naysayers and the people that are trying to hold them back. So how would you say, you know, technology, you know, being technical is, is obviously an important part of this field that that will never go away. but. You know, where are the areas that people should push on when they are hiring? Because not everybody is going to be technical. It's not always needed. And in some roles, it, it might be better to not be. But for those people who want to grow their career and also acquire some of those technical skills, what do you think are the good resources? Because back then, as you said, tinkering on your own, that was, that was kind of it. Now we have college and, and graduate level degrees in it. Where's the happy medium? You know, maybe someone who can't go to school, who doesn't have that opportunity or just on their own trying to learn. What, what advice do you have for them? Um, I mean, the first part of your question, um, we let me talk a little bit about IBM and the hiring that we do there. I run an internship program through IBM's X-Force and we get a large number of applicants every year because it's a uh, a federally recognized internship program. We have certain requirements as to who can apply and, and what, what their status is. But we often get candidates who are not as technical as other candidates, right? Um, and that makes, makes sense. And so we try not to exclude folks who may not have the same uh, resources available at the, whatever school they choose to be at because some other school happens to have a better computing program. Um, uh, so we, when we do our interviews and we ask people questions, we, we design the questions in such a way that those who have the technical skills can shine in the technical aspects. But for those that don't have the technical skills, uh, they can still shine in the interview and answer the question appropriately by basically the question is designed to think, to, to explore how a person thinks as opposed to what they know. Right. So, um, you know, if you can tell me, uh, you know, what TC poop. TCP port 22 is, great. Uh, if you can't, that's okay too. Uh, and you can tell me instead how you would figure something out. So now how does somebody who doesn't have access to resources to be technical get technical? Um, you know, it, the internet is there. If you have access to the internet, uh, you really have access to everything you need to be. And there's another flip side to your question. Um, and I think is that, you know, is there an, a still an area today for the self-taught security professional. Uh, it's still a debate that sort of rages whether or not somebody should, needs to have a cybersecurity degree uh, or whether or not they can sort of learn everything on their own. 
and I think there is still a space for that person who wants to go it on their own and learn it on their own. Is it going to be easier? Absolutely not. Uh, the easiest route is to try to get a college degree uh, in your chosen field from a reputable school and do well uh, in your grades. Uh, that's the easiest way. Now, you can go different ways. You can get certifications. You can just self-teach yourself. Um, but it is going to be more difficult. So that's where it becomes incumbent upon those in the industry who are doing the hiring to try to recognize that those types of people exist who may not have a high-level security degree uh, and instead have sort of been really, really working hard, possibly harder, uh, to try to learn the same amount of stuff. Uh, and so we have to recognize that those people are out there and give them an opportunity and be able to hire them when we can. Thank you. So, so kind of kind of building off that question, um, do you see a loft-shaped hole in, in the industry today? You know, obviously we've got community stuff. We've got local DEF CON groups. Uh, there's discords all over the place. Certainly, I, th I think there's a lot of collectives that are that are more tied together um, you know, and, and, and disparate, you know, all over the place, you know, than, than folks who are locally who go to like a, uh, you know, but, but we've got both, you know, we've got people spread out over multiple time zones and in, in countries that work together on stuff. And we've got folks who, you know, effectively have like a maker space, you know, and, and, and hang out, uh, in person a lot. But, um, have we lost anything though? Do, do you see that kind of loft shape hole anywhere? Is, is, uh, you know, the communities that we have now, you know, less effective, you know, maybe not, you know, a lot of it's dr driven after getting people a job in the industry, right? Whereas that wasn't necessarily the loft's goal, right? It, it was to figure things out. It was to find solutions to problems, to find the problems in the first place. You know, is, is no, there something that's been I think, uh, I mean, there was no industry, right, when the loft was around doing, trying to do this sort of thing. So there was no uh, uh, push for loft to try to get people into the industry because the industry did not exist. Uh, is there a loft size hole today? Uh, I don't think there's a hole. Uh, I think that things are more distributed, uh, more flatter, uh, more wider. I mean, you listed off a whole bunch of different things that are, that are going on with discords and, and slacks and, and, you know, you got B-sides events everywhere. Uh, so... I think there's definitely uh, opportunities available for folks. Uh, it's just not in a one-stop shop. Like you can't just go to the Loft website and down a bunch of files and 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 learn a bunch of stuff. You kind of got to go around and poke where you're at. Also, there's a lot more stuff to learn, right? Uh, we've got 25 years of technology that that didn't exist uh, back in the Loft days. So uh, there's a lot more stuff to learn. It's distributed around in a lot more places which might make it a little bit more difficult for people to try to find all that stuff. But if you find your niche, find your what interests you, uh, then you can hopefully find your people and, and collaborate with them and build your community and move from there. And then building on that, um, did the loft back in the day do much collaboration with other groups or were groups mostly siloed? Did, was it seen as competition or... You know, were there any research projects where, like, you guys at the CDC or, you know, some, some other groups uh, uh, put your heads together and stuff? Uh, there was not a lot of, it was not siloed, as you would think, as, as, as what you're saying. It also wasn't really a very collaborative space. There was cross-pollination, right? Uh, some of the LOF members were members of Cult of the Dead Cow, but there were also memberships in RDT. Uh, I think we had a WooWoo member. Uh, there may have been a Root member or two. Uh, so there was a lot of cross-pollination. Uh, 
were the I don't remember specifically any uh, collaborative efforts of uh, various things other than uh, the signatory of the letter denouncing the LOU cyber war. Um, but other than that, there were, I don't remember a lot of projects where uh, one group would would work together with another group. And that may have been a limitation of the technology at the time. I don't know. LOF was a physical group where we had a physical space and we physically got together every week. A lot of other groups were virtual and, and only existed online. Um, so that may have been a little bit of a difference there between uh, the, the things. But uh, And I worked with outside people individually. Uh, I had a lot of work that I did with attrition.org and, and, and Jericho and some other groups. Uh, and I'm sure other members of the loft had their thing uh, that they did and th things that they worked on, which is, again, another reason why I'm hoping that, that other folks write their own books uh, so that we can learn more of these stories. I know, uh, and I'm going to go off on a tangent from your question here, uh, you know, after... I think Tan read the book and, and Weld read the book and, and Kingpin read the book. And they get back to me like, I didn't know that happened. Uh, like, and they were there in the room with me and like, they don't remember that happening. So uh, I'm sure that they have similar stories that they remember uh, or very events that were very poignant to them uh, and that I have no recollection or was not involved in at all. So um, I've kind of deviated from your question, but yeah. No, 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 it's good. Uh, yeah, Tyler, go ahead. Yeah, hey, Space, as we bump up against the end of our time here on this conversation, I have one additional question. Um, you know, I feel like, because, like I said, I've been in the same era as you, I feel like time is killing a lot of our learnings from back in the day. And now a lot of the, you know, technologies documented, things like that. But, you know, you and I came up the same way. We hacked for learning and knowledge. We built an industry. We built a discipline that didn't exist before we and many others, but we got into it. And, you know, as time progresses, less and less people know the history of those that came before them. Um, what can we do? You're writing a book, which is a great example of it. But what could we do besides writing an awesome book to ensure that the learnings of our era don't fade away with us? And I don't just mean the technical learnings, but the relationship learnings, the knowledge learnings, the things that you really do outline in the book, in the book. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, writing books is one way. Uh, and I think there's a certain permanence to a book and putting things down on actual physical paper as opposed to a blog post or something. Uh, and I would encourage more people who are around in that time frame or who, who had involvement in specific events to, to record their memories and thoughts down on, on in a book. Uh, but I know there are other efforts to try to preserve some of that legacy, if you will. Uh, Jack Daniel. Uh, at one point was working on the shoulders of InfoSec pro uh, project. I don't know if he's passed that off onto someone else or not, uh, but he was attempt basically attempting to uh, document the giants of our industry who came before us uh, and, and the, the shoulders that we stood on to try to get to the point that we were at. Um, so hopefully that effort is continuing. Um, and, and, and hopefully, and I know there's a lot of data preservation going on. Uh, Jason Scott is a, one of the people that I know that are, are actively doing this and trying to save all the bits and bytes that are out there uh, and before they get deleted and, and lost and gone forever. Uh, I mean, I have my own data hoard, which will hopefully get up, uploaded to the Internet Archive at some point, uh, including this book uh, as, you know, sort of saving it for posterity, if you will. Uh, and I encourage others to try to save their data and, and find some way to get it out to the masses and share it. Uh, so that it's available and that the history isn't lost. Uh, it was one of the reasons why I wrote the book is because I kind of thought the history was kind of getting away from us and we were collectively forgetting it. 
unfortunately, I only know a very small part of the overall history. And so that's what I, I wrote. Yeah, no, and, and I thank you for that. Like, I think it's very, very important. It's one of the reasons why I reached out when I heard you were you were uh, putting a book out. I was like, I got I to gotta get space on the, on the show for sure. You know, it's funny. One of the key things that everybody always throws back to is uh, the, the loft testimony, um, which we have a, a picture of, I think, a group of you right before uh, the loft testimony. Yep. Is, is yep. this picture ring a bell? Yep. That was the morning of the testimony outside the uh, Phoenix Hotel in Washington, D.C., uh, and, uh, we had the, I think the doorman took the picture, uh, and we all had our, our, our suits on, uh, which was, I think I mentioned this in the book was kind of a bone of contention as to what we were going to wear. And I'm like, we're going to the U S Capitol, we're wearing damn suits. Uh, and so we all had to go to the men's warehouse and buy a suit because I don't think we all owned one. Um, so yeah, that was the picture that was taken that morning, uh, on our way to the Capitol right before we testified. Yeah, that's that's such a classic photo. I've seen it a million times. I've been I've been uh, privy to see it a handful of times. But um, I want to thank you for for coming on the show. And it's funny that that's what everybody always refers to as that moment in time when you testified in front of Congress. But there's so much more meat to this story that I definitely recommend everybody go out and buy this book. It really is a great read. Um, uh, you know, I want to kick it back to Adrian to wrap up this this episode. But space, I want to personally thank you for coming on and, and getting into thank some you. of the, the meat of that history. I love being on this show. <laughs> Adrian, over to you. Yeah, no, this has been a lot of fun. If you could only see our back channel in our in our Slack, yeah. literally a thousand questions hit the uh, cutting room floor for this. So yeah, we'll we'll have to have you back on uh, again to chat. Like I, I'd love to just chat CompUSA because uh, you had oh, similar experience. Yeah. Oh yeah. Compusa. I I, lo I love that job. Uh, coincidentally, the only job where people yelled "Yo, Adrian!" at me. Uh, with free, ne never an issue at any other job. Only CompUSA did that. But uh, <laughs> unfortunately, that's all we've got time for today. Thank you so much, Space, for coming on and, and sharing your stories with us. Thank you for having me. Books uh, available today at all your major resellers. Yeah, if we could throw up that book image uh, again, you can go to securityweekly.com forward slash Space Rogue, which will redirect to the page uh, that that Space has collecting. Uh, all the different places you can buy both the ebook and the physical book. All right, stay tuned. When we come back, we're going to talk pen testing and red teaming with Pablo Zurro from Fortress Core Security.